I know that there are people in the publishing industry who listen to these podcasts, and I'm like, okay, how much can I say without getting myself in trouble? This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of the kick-ass Vanessa Michael Monroe thrillers, and this is the Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. Taylor, you know, you're a big-time writer, and <laughs> big-time writers only have to work like a few hours a week because that's just sort of the way it goes, because you have other people that take care of everything for you. So I was going to ask you... <laughs> what you did on Memorial Day, but since we're actually recording this on Memorial Day, I happen to know that you, this is a work day for you. Yes, and <laughs> just forget everything he said about other people. He's making fun of me, you guys. And that's actually, it sort of leads into our topic for today, which which follows up on what we were talking about last week, sort of the differences in publishing, the publishing process between a traditionally published author like Taylor and an indie-published author like me. Uh, one of the other similarities is that when things like holidays come up, we're oftentimes sitting in our chairs writing or taking care of other things to do with our writing business. Yep, and I think that's pretty common for a lot of authors. I, I think we don't really take much time off, which, I mean, I guess that's the the price we pay or the flip side of not working at a day job you know it's like this is just part of it and and I, I mean that with no complaint whatsoever like well we're not working at a day job so you know working <laughs> on memorial day no big deal <laughs> it is no big deal and you know people it, it happens to me all the time it's like what are you doing on memorial day it's like well i'm gonna do the same thing that i do every monday <laughs> right exactly <laughs> And that leads us right into our topic, which today is, is following up on the book production process. When we last talked, you had already seen the proof of your cover and you had seen a layout of the book. So you are way ahead of me at, at the same stage. We, were, we sort of cut it off at the point where the manuscript is done and it's, it's maybe in final proof or something like that. But we're essentially done with the manuscript. With the actual editing and tweaking of the words. Right. And then you have seen a cover. And you have Which seen... Which may not be the final cover, but I've seen a cover. Okay. And do you get any... Do you get a vote on the cover? I get, I don't get a veto vote, but depending on how seriously they're taking me in the moment, um, they will take what I have to say into account and for the most part, really try and work with me if I have an issue with something. And how about the, uh, the book layout? Has there ever been a time when you looked at the layout and you said, I'm not crazy about the way you're handling chapter numbers or titles or anything like that? No, there was um, the, the font. I finally got them to change the typeface by the time the doll came around. They used the same typeface in The Informationist and in The Innocent. And it didn't, I didn't have anything to say about that until I started getting complaints from readers telling me how difficult it was to read that typeface. And apparently um, a little more difficult on older eyes than younger eyes. And hmm. because there's such a lead time on all of the books, by the time I finally got them to change it, it we were already into the doll. Okay. And then in my case, I need to contract with a cover designer. And if, if I'm smart, I've done that ahead of time. But th this is the time when you start really 
winnowing down this is the this is the cover that I want and this is the cover that that tells the best story and and in your case you have people that have done this for, this is what they do right <laughs> they, and that, they create these covers and that brings me to a question about yours your part of the process because mm-hmm. in my case um, there might be 20 or 30 proofs and this especially happened before they figured out the branding for the book for the for the covers mm-hmm. uh, there might be 20 or 30 proofs before I even see one um, and then from there we we go on and I only saw them like after the fact way way later so for you how many times does a a graphic designer, your cover artist, work it, and are you working with one single idea, or do they say there's this possibility, this possibility, this possibility? Like, how does it work for you? Well, that's an interesting question, because my graphics designer is my wife, who's a very talented graphics artist, and so I, I give her a sense of what the book's about, and then she comes up with ideas, and then we begin to narrow it down to something uh, okay. that, that we think might work. And then we will share it on social media in closed groups where it's not out in the open. It's just people who are authors, essentially, looking at the cover. And we thought, in this case, we thought we had it nailed. And I sent the cover out, and I think it was 10 people commented. Two of them saw something that I did not see and and Julie did not see. And the other eight said, it's fantastic. Go with it. So if it had been one, we'd have probably said this this guy's just an oddball, but it was two. So that meant we needed to go with a different version, which was actually significantly different. So once we did that, then we we actually came up with two different versions and then posted those on public Facebook and asked for not comments, but do you like option A? Or option B, right? <laughs> to make it simple, and uh, option B, I believe, was the overwhelming winner. It was like ninety percent, as okay. ninety ten. And interestingly enough, I had emailed you the covers, and you liked the other one better. Well, <laughs> for reasons that I explained yes. to you. <laughs> well, you should explain them now because I think it it, it was an interesting point. Uh, it just had to do with the placement of the text and the size of different elements, and I felt that overall that one was better because of those things, but there were elements in the other cover that I felt were probably better on their own. Like, if it could have been possible to to, to combine the two, it would have been the perfect cover for me, but, you know, I'm not the one who's buying it, so... You know, I was just one data point, as Steve and I right. like to say. But, but a good data point, but... Uh... In, in general, for me, if I, if I put something out there and the response is overwhelming, I, I'm willing to go with uh, the overwhelming response. And I was up against a deadline. This is something, because I was late in getting the cover done, and I had, I had made a commitment mostly to myself to, to release the book on a certain day, I needed to, to finalize the cover and, and be done with that. Right. Now, and another- in, the ca- in the case of... Uh- the ones that are done at traditional publishers, I don't actually know the process that they go through in terms of who's looking at them, but I know it's going to go to the editor. It's going to go to the, probably going to go to the editorial team, um, the possibly the publisher or the editor's boss and sales, marketing, all these people are going to weigh in on it, but I don't actually know the process. I only know that I see what they've all decided is probably a good fit. And how far in advance of the release do you actually see the cover? Because I know typically when you get it, you'll, you'll throw it up on Facebook. 
I'm guessing maybe six months out, possibly, depending okay. on how many changes are made along the way. Um, you know, it's about a nine month process from manuscript to being completed to when the maybe six month process. I don't know. It's been different every single time. But there's a lot of lead time because of how many steps it still has to go through by the time it it does get published. So they're already working on the covers while the manuscript is in editing. And because of the publication process and everything that needs to happen, the publisher needs to have the cover well in advance so that it can get into catalogs and exactly. on websites and, and all of this stuff. So they, they have a much more in-depth process that you have to go through than, than what most indie authors have to go through. Now there's another thing. You've already seen the layout of your book, and I've got to convert mine to a, a layout that will work for the different online publishers. And, and, and in my case, it was just Amazon, so that was simple. But there are tools that you can use where you just input the text and uh, copy and paste generally, and it will output to EPUB and Mobi and, and everything that you need. So, one... so here's, here's a question for you on mm-hmm. that. Like, do you have to strip out all formatting or like do you make your chapters and all this, you know, all your chapter breaks and your fonts, do you do all that ahead of time? And then it just sucks that right in or what? Well, if, if I was really good at that stuff, it would. I, I use two different tools. Uh, when I'm writing, I use Scrivener. And Scrivener will format the books, but it's a little bit more complicated than the other tool that I use for formatting, which is called Vellum. So I output the text uh, in a single file from Scrivener and then import it into vellum and it breaks down the chapters and then i typically will have to go in and tweak it a little bit and then add the cover tell it which online um services that i that i want it to be available on and choose things like how do i want the cover to look or not the cover the 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 chapters to look how do i want the first line of text of each chapter to look things like that so it's kind of things that you never have to think about because it's done for you well, you know, I still have to think about them, too, because when they send me the proofs, sometimes I don't like the way they've done it. And I'll be like, I, wa- I don't want this indented, these first ones. I want them, you know, straight. I don't like this. And they'll change it based, you know, if it's reasonable. And it's probably the kind of thing that for, at least for me, I just look at it and I go, eh, that looks okay. And I, yeah, I look at the other ones and I'll pick the one I like. There's no science behind it. There's no study. There's no, there's no nothing. I just pick the one I liked. And, yeah. you know, I, I guess if people said, I wish you would have done it this other way, then, then I might do something different with the next one. But I think in general, that kind of thing, people just don't even notice it. And I think it matters maybe more when it comes to print because yes. when you're reading an ebook, it's it's just kind of different. Those types of things don't matter quite as much as when you're holding an actual paper copy in your hands. And one other big thing is if you're just e-publishing like I did, you can make changes after the fact. Very nice. So if somebody came along and said, wow, you really blew it by doing the first sentence of each chapter this way, it would take me five minutes to change it and re-upload the file. Well, here's a question then. Does everybody who has that book on their Kindle get the updated file? In theory, yes. In, in practical application, they have to select an option to automatically download updates. Oh, okay. So, uh, yes and no. 
Okay, so that's that. Now we're finally caught up, and, and we're back at the same point. Now we get into promotional material. Okay. Um, things like, in, in your case, it would be back cover material, um, the, the material that would go on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Kobo that describes the book. Do you get involved in that at all? Yeah, I actually do a lot of heavy lifting on that, and it doesn't have to be that way. I'm sure there are authors who are perfectly content to um, to let other people do that. But in my and of course they're always going to ask your approval for it because it's still the words, and the only thing the author traditionally published author really has any control over is the words of the book. We don't have final say so on all these other aspects, so our destiny is kind of being handed for handled for us, and we just kind of have to go with the flow unless you're a really, really big author who has a lot of weight, or you throw a big fit, which is not always advisable. <laughs> um, so in my case, the, the words really matter. And um, I have found that while most editors are really, really, really good at editing, they're not so good at writing. And I don't mean that disparagingly at all. And not everyone is like that. But um, they're looking for the, the hard sell, and, you know, try and get people interested in picking it up. So sometimes the word choices are maybe not quite as um, cadence-oriented as I would like them to be. And so, you know, there'll be some dickering back and forth. And usually there's really tight word count um, limitations. And so it's how much of this can we fit onto the cover. And um, so that's where all of that goes into. But, yeah, I, I do a lot. Of, I have done in the past a lot of the heavy lifting on what shows up on the back covers. Do you feel like you're good at that? Because it's a really unique skill. It's so different than writing the book. It's it, this, writing this descriptive text. What I like is when they send me the, um, this is what we're proposing to do. And then I work off of that. Mm -hmm. um, I do much better fixing up stuff that other people have already done than having to come up with it myself. Well, let me tell you how I do it. <laughs> because, because I interview people on podcasts, I, several months ago, went out to someone who wrote a book on writing blurb material and interviewed him. Oh, very <laughs> so smart. So we call that the free consulting part yeah. of podcasting, which uh, I'm sure listeners have noticed me asking a lot of my own questions on this show, and it's, it's a great way for me to get the free consulting. Well, I love it when you do because we often do need questions, and I figure that the questions that you have to deal with are ones that other people are dealing with too. So it's perfect. Win-win. Okay. Now we're on, on to promotion, and I've got something that's that, – well, promotion – No, you have to tell us how you do your blurbs first. Oh, well, in, in the book that this guy had written, there were 26 different ways of writing the blurbs, but essentially it's just really active voice – and, you know, short, don't try and tell the story, just try and give enough information to get people interested. And I don't think I did a great job with it, but um, I, I, I know how to do it, and knowing how to do it is half the battle than doing it is the other half. I liked your blurb. I thought it was really well done, your, oh. your material. But I just want to, I know this is kind of off topic, interject it, but everything you just said about writing a blurb mm -hmm. also applies to writing a query letter. Oh, it's totally off topic, but good information. Yeah. Okay. Moving along. Okay. All right. Promotional <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Now I'm going to embarrass you perhaps. Oh God. <laughs> because I <laughs> went you? all the way back and people who have listened to this show for a long time know that we have a, uh, a checkered history together of me a long time ago. In fact, on September 6th, 2013, 
responding to an email that I got from your email list begging you to be on a, a show that I was doing at that time. And I, I won't read my email message, but let's just say there's a lot of begging in there. And He's so exaggerating, you guys. You so responded by, and I'll read what you said. Thanks so much for thinking of me and also for the very kind things you said about my book, Smiley Face. I'd be happy to participate on your radio show. This is the interesting part. I'm CCing this email to my publicist, publicist name, so that she can be in the loop and keep me from any scheduling conflicts. Now, just in case anyone's wondering, I did not have a publicist for the release of my book. <laughs> That's a big difference at, at this stage when we're, when we're doing the promotional stuff because in a lot of cases, um, you might have a, a promotional schedule that's that's been set ahead of time with guest posts and uh, articles in magazines and things like that that come out that are all just a part of the production process. Yes. Yes and no. I can give you the insider's track now on what's going on behind the scenes with all of that. Um, First of all, That's why we listen. We want the insider's track. (laughs) (laughs) I I know that there are people in the publishing industry who listen to these podcasts, and I'm like, okay, how much can I say without getting myself in trouble? Um, Every author is going to be assigned a publicist. And the the publicists, though, um, they might have 40, 50 authors that they're juggling at any given time. And who's getting their priority at that point is kind of dependent on how big the book is to the publisher and how much they think that the publicity will do any, anything for them. I mean, they only have so many tools in their arsenal. Um, publicists and marketing are two completely separate departments in publishing, which from an outside perspective doesn't make any sense. It's always been really hard for me to get wrap my head around that. But inside the publishing house, they serve two completely separate uh, purposes where a publicist is dealing with media, interviews, um, magazines, and a market marketers are going to be dealing with um, blogs and um, online uh, promotions and all of that. It's uh, even now I'm still compu- somewhat confused about who does what. When the information is launched, um, there was so much publicity around it that I was getting buried in requests, and so part of the the, the reason for throwing everything to my publicist was that if somebody had to be the bad guy and decline, it didn't have to be me. Mm-hmm. And so the publicist would step in and say, no, I'm sorry, she's just too busy, whatever. And there, I can't even think of a case or two where that happened, but it was a way to sort of screen and buy time before committing to something that might not be good. And, and I don't mean like good in the sense of... It's just who is this person? Who are they? And, you know, to, to check them out because you get a lot of you can get a lot of really sketchy uh, situations. And um, somebody I've had it happen multiple times. You know, I'm a blogger in India and, you know, send me a free book, you know, that type mm-hmm. of stuff. And so when you have that buffer, it allows you not to um, be the person who makes an unstable person angry who decides to trash you on the Internet because you said no. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what's going on with that. But as you get further and further into the publication process, uh, publicity can't really do much for you. You're not new anymore. Sure, you have a new book, but they can't, you know, they've already been to all the magazines. They've already been to the outlets. Unless they can find some new angle to interest them in you, you're just, you're old now. 
two, three books, that's it, you know, unless you're, you know, Lee Child who publishes Jack Reacher and everybody wants a piece of him. So the further along you get into the publication journey, the less involved your publicist is in what's going on with you. And so now I do so much of my own scheduling and I, I hardly ever CC anybody on requests that I get because they don't care anymore. And now it is because it's you're, you're further along in in the process. Um, it, you've you've been able to build your own platform because you have you have Facebook, you have uh, you know whatever you use for social media, and I think it's primarily Facebook for you. And you have your email list, and yeah. you have the podcast, and you do other interviews. And I know with the mask, you did a very high profile guest blog, but I can't remember who it was with. Oh, it was Slate. Slate. Yes. Yes, so that was something that came from the publicity department, right? That wasn't you it, calling well, Slate and saying, hey, can I do this? Correct. But, but in that case, it was me saying, I've written this piece that I feel ties in real well with what I did. Can you place it? Okay, so you actually went ahead and wrote some things ahead of time and gave them to the publicity department and asked them to place them. Yes, and I've written things that they haven't been able to place also. Okay. And then what happens with those? Do you do you publish them yourself? No, they just sit on my computer because, you know, there's so I, there's so much stuff that I've written. It just sits in a folder and one day <laughs> I'll go through it. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Anyway, moving along. Okay. All right. Now now we'll we'll take on my promotional schedule, which I obviously did not have a a marketing department or a PR person assigned to me. But what I did have is three different podcasts that I'm a part of, uh, three different mailing lists, and uh, a reasonable social media platform. So that's what I used. And uh, the other thing that I did that you probably didn't have to do, although I know you do some of this yourself, is that I sent out review copies. Um, And I know that the publisher sends out review copies for you, but you get some yourself that you send to people, not so much for review, but for, hey, here's the new book. Thanks for everything you do. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that's that's pretty much it. That's pretty much the promotional part. And then the book comes out, and here again is where things are really different. Because for me, the book comes out, it, it either sells or it doesn't. It doesn't you know, it, it, it would be great if it sold a gazillion copies on the first day or the second day or the yeah, fifth day. Yeah, guys, did you get Steve's book already? Come on. Yes. This is your little reminder. If you didn't do it last week, you should have done it or I'm not going to be happy with you. And the title of that book again, for those of you who didn't take notes last <laughs> week, is The Four Seasons of Reno Hart. But this is one of the great things about indie publishing is that there is no expiration date on these books. Right. I could write a third in the series a year from now and it could become popular and all of a sudden all the books become popular and that that happens all the time in this world in your world. I mean it happens in your world too, but there's all this pressure to have success quickly to keep the books on the shelves. Yes, and I think that's that's still rooted in the old way when there were bookstores and it's because Bookstores have limited space, and when a bookstore buys books from a publisher, it's really they're buying them on consignment to a to a certain degree because anything they don't sell, they can send back and get credit and buy something else. And so anything that's not moving off the bookshelves, the bookstores aren't going to want to um, 
to sell or to, to carry. And that creates what's known as a spiral of death, where then when the next book comes out, they look and say, well, how many copies of those did we sell? Okay, well, we're going to order even fewer of them this time. And um, so the publishing house is under an enormous pressure within those first eight weeks to get as many copies sold as possible. And after that, um, they just there's really nothing that goes on with it. It sells or it doesn't, which is a little bit ironic because so many copies are sold in ebook now. So the same mm-hmm. the same um, scenario that you're facing where it's just there on the e-shelf and that can become insanely popular five years from now. It's the same for a traditional published author, but the publishing house doesn't really view it that way, in my experience. And you're right, it is odd, because I happen to know, because I think you told me this on a show, that um, The Informationist has been a New York Times bestseller multiple times because yes. of promotional campaigns where it goes out and it, they promote it because it's the first in the series, and you, you sell a gazillion copies. And for which I get pennies. What, yes, yes, because... Yeah, just because you know the book is is very inexpensive when it's promoted that way, and uh, the the agreement that you have with the publisher means that you don't get a ton of money on that. But still, it, it just goes to show the power of being able to run through a promotion cycle again on a on a book and a series. Yes, and that is one one thing is that um, like there's a lot of promo uh, hubs, I guess you could say, like BookBub, for mm-hmm. example, where um, a BookBub promotion can can move thousands and thousands of copies, but BookBub isn't free. And so the the question always is: Will you will you move enough free copies or very inexpensive copies off of BookBub to encourage readers to get uh, your actual paid material to cover the cost of that promotion? I never have to worry about that because when my publisher runs a promotion, I'm not paying for it, which is very different from a, uh, an expense-based perspective than what an indie author has to face when they're trying to cover their expenses. Yes, it, it is completely different. And generally what will happen uh, in, in an indie situation is someone will take a book and promote it for 99 cents or maybe even free. If It, it costs less to do a free book on BookBub than a paid book. But if you do the 99-cent promotion, then you hope they like it well enough to buy the next book in the series and then the next book in the series and the next book in the series. And then you more than make up the several hundred dollars that it costs for the BookBub ad. If it works. Yes, if (laughs) If it works. works. But BookBub is not something that you just say, hey, I want to do a BookBub ad, and everyone gets it. You have to have a certain quality of book, a certain number of reviews, a certain number of positive reviews. So it's not for everybody, but for those who can use it, it, it's a wonderful thing. And there are also other services out there. I just used that one as an example. They are they are the biggest, but there you're right. There are others. There are plenty of others out there that that listeners may be uh, may be a part of. Uh, did we leave anything out in this two part series? Um, not up till now, but I think it would be really interesting to explore what happens after too at some point. What do you like, mean with sales, like trajectories, and okay, um, you know how what what kind of responses it gets, and you know what it is that actually helps a book sell, things like that. That would be interesting. Another big difference after after the fact is that you don't have tremendous insight into what's going on. You have like high level insight into what's going on, 
but indie authors have a lot more insight. They can almost yeah, track on sure. a sale-by-sale basis, and there are actually little applications that you can put on your computer that will ring a bell whenever yes. a, another copy is sold on any digital store. Like, I know the really big authors, going back to Lee Child again, he has a level of detail that someone like me can mm-hmm. only dream about having because he carries that kind of weight with his publisher. But that is one thing that is really frustrating as an author is to be so disconnected from the people who are actually buying and my books. I'm, it's, not, it's almost like I'm three steps removed from the process. And so I'm writing blind, but yet I'm expected to succeed based on having zero information on what is actually I'm doing right which an indie author can tell, you know, how many pages are being read and um, the speed at which they're being read and probably a host of other data that I don't even know about. I mean, that's why I do my mailing list and my podcast and and have my Facebook page. And and now we have the, um, the Facebook group as well, because that allows me to get a little more on the ground uh, insight into what's working and what's not working. Um, and it's as close as I can get to actually being in contact with the, the people who are using the end product, so to speak. All right. We're running long, but that's okay because I think this is interesting. Do you think things are changing in the publishing industry? Do you, think, uh, do you think authors, traditionally published authors, are getting more insight? Do you see that on the horizon? We definitely have more insight than we used to. I think every major publishing house now has an author portal where you can log in and see that week's sales. You can see whether they were ebook or paper and where you have a little more um, opportunity to track closer to real time. Um, you know, we've talked before about how in publishing there's two different numbers you watch, which is the, the actual copies sold, which is based on Nielsen's, and then the uh, copies that have been shipped out of the publishing house. We don't have the ability, I don't have the ability to see on what platforms they're being sold. I can't tell if they're being sold on Apple or Amazon or BNN, which I really wish that I could. Um, it's more than what we used to have, but still far short from what you have. Okay. Well, this has been interesting, and we should we should do a third episode at some point in the future about this that, that takes it out a little bit further in the process. That's an interesting idea, but it is time. I wish I could do a drum roll. It is time for our <laughs> call to action. Okay. What's our call to action? All right. And this is for listeners out there, listeners out there who are tired of hearing my voice asking Taylor these questions. <laughs> We're setting up a way that you can ask the questions. We want you to call in. We've set up a Google Voice number that you can call in, identify yourself if you want to. If you're an author, identify yourself, tell us what you write, and ask the question. And we'll play it on the air, and then Taylor will respond to it. So that number is area code 469 587 Nine three six seven. Again, it's four six nine five eight seven nine three six seven. When you call it, you'll hear Taylor's voice on the other end. Remember, this is a Google Voice number. You're not reaching her at home. Yeah, right. <laughs> really important to know that this is not my personal number, people. So if you are also if you're tech savvy, you can just record the question yourself and email it to contact at Taylor Stevens Books. That would give us a little bit better audio quality. But for those people who don't want to go through that process, call the number, ask the question. We look forward to beginning to play some of those in the next few weeks. So that's it. We are done this week, Taylor. 
this has been fun. It has, and we will be back again next week without a series. But I know what the topic is, so I'm excited about it. So join us again next week to hear about that. See you next week, guys. Thanks for being here.